Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Efren Peña, and I am the campus pastor here, and it is my privilege to welcome you all to Southfield Santa Clarita, where the coffee is always fresh, the donut holes are plenty, and the people are absolutely amazing. We are one church of many campuses, and uh, uh, all around the world, and we uh, want to say welcome and thank you for coming. Today, not only are we kicking off an incredible brand new series, but we're also kicking off an entire month of events and patio parties for the entire family. So whether you're married, whether you're just dating, whether you have kids, whether you're single, we want you to come out and hang out with us uh, right after our uh, service here and uh, uh, just have some fun, all right? We encourage you to do so. Today, we, like I said before, we officially begin Family Month. Family Month is something that uh, we spend a lot of time and energy uh, cultivating and creating every year. Uh, in October, it's Family Month for us and it's an opportunity uh, for us to be able to share some insight, some wisdom uh, with everyone in regard to relationships, and um, so today we're going to be kicking off Family Month, and we're going to be talking about, once again, relationships. So what about relationships, all right? What makes relationships work? Why do we seem to click with and feel cared for by certain people, while others give us the impression that we're insignificant, invisible, or in the way? How is it that some families can hardly stomach one another, but others seem yet so close? Is it, is it all an act, or do they know something that we don't? Well, as it turns out, both scripture and science agree on the answer. And the good news is all the research suggests certain practices right? Certain practices have the power to turn a bad thing around and make a good thing even better. So what are these practices and how do we apply them in our relationships? That's what this series is all about. I like to start all my messages with a question to get your noggin juices flowing, right? And so my question this morning is, can you remember a time when you witnessed someone doing something outlandish, something immature, something crazy, and you thought to yourself, man, this person is just trying to get attention. They are just wanting attention for themselves. Maybe that is someone you know personally. Maybe that's someone in your family. Maybe that's a friend. Or maybe you just happened to be at Walmart and you heard, you saw something that was like a little crazy and you were like, man, what people would do to get attention here. Here's the thing. Much of what we do is an attempt to get our three core emotional needs met. Three core emotional needs met. What are they? They are, number one, to be liked. Number two, to be included. And number three, to be in control of our story. Those are our three core emotional needs. So how do we go about getting these, these needs met? We don't usually just outright ask because that could uh, come off as a bit pretentious, right? No, we go through this process called bidding. We bid in order to get our three core emotional needs met. 
But what does that mean to bid? A bid is a request for connection. But we all bid in different ways. Bids look different from person to person depending on your upbringing, depending on your uh, experiences, your personality, your level of stress, or your season of life, which in reality can make them really difficult to decode. A bid could be verbal or nonverbal, physical or intellectual, sexual or non-sexual, high or low energy, funny or dead serious. It could be a question, a comment, a gesture, a look, a touch, really any attempt to say, I want to feel connected to you. Now, most bids happen in such simple, mundane ways that we don't see them for what they are unless we're actually looking for them. And a lot of us are so busy and so overstretched and so involved in our own lives and goals and problems that we miss the people around us who are asking for our attention, wanting to be included, wanting to be liked. So let me ask you this. If you started seeing every interaction through this lens, through the understanding that people are always bidding for your connection or to be uh, bidding to connect with you, how might that transform or change the way you interact with everyone in your life? What if, what if it was about something more than than actually than what it actually appeared on the surface? What if what your wife, your children, your coworker, your boss, neighbor, Rista, whoever, what if what they were really trying to say is, I'm trying to connect with you because ultimately I want to be liked, because I want to be included. I feel like I have some sense of control over my own story. What if your coworker inviting you to lunch wasn't just about the lunch specials, even though they're pretty good specials? What if your kid asking you to come to his game has nothing to do with the game itself? What if your husband pointing out that really cool car to you, even though you could care less about cars, isn't about cars at all? What if these are all ultimately just their way of attempting to say, please, please connect with me? Now, renowned relational researcher John Gottman discovered that how close we feel to someone directly correlates to how they respond to our bids for connection over time. I'll repeat that again. How close we feel to someone directly correlates, right, there's a connection there, to how they respond to our bids of connection over time. You see, here's the thing. We respond to bids for connection in one of three ways. We respond positively. We do that when we act engaged, attentive, responsive, interested, and enthusiastic. And in return, they hear 
I'm interested in you. I hear you. I want to understand you. I am on your side. I want to be with you. I want to help. I love you even if I don't get everything you're doing. We respond negatively when we... Now, you can also respond negatively, right? We respond negatively when we act defensive or argumentative or critical, angry or maybe even controlling. And what they hear when we do that, when we respond that way, they hear that you're annoying and in the way. I don't respect you. I don't value you. I don't need you. This relationship is, is disposable. I don't care if you're hurt. Now go away. And the last way we can respond to people's connection is indifferently. We do this when we act distant, distracted, uninterested, silent, or even ignoring. And what they hear when we are indifferent, they hear, I'm avoiding you. Your interests are beneath me. Everything is more important than you. You are not worth my time. I don't want to get involved with you. I don't care about you. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you're assuming that the worst way to respond to bids for connection is to respond negatively. But the truth is, research shows responding indifferently, right? Responding indifferently is what's most damaging to a relationship. Friends, we cannot stand and ultimately cannot survive being ignored. Think about that. Think about the last person who ignored you, the last person who, 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 who didn't pay attention to you. It burned you up. It hurts you, right? It hurts your soul just to hear these things said out loud. Most of us would never say these things to anyone, let alone the, uh, the, alone the people that we love the most. And yet we behave in ways that communicate these very things on a consistent basis to those we claim we're closest to. And the worst part of it is that we're not even doing it on purpose. We're just so busy and, so di and they're so different from us that we're not even aware of the bids coming our way from those we love. And for some of us, our most valued relationships are slipping through our fingers and we don't understand why is that. Because truth is, we're, we're really trying and we really love them. The thing is, we've just never learned to see the world this way. And the consequences of that can be devastating and detrimental to those we love and care about the most. And what's crazy is that this is how it's always worked. During this whole series, to illustrate how deeply ingrained these truths are in the human experience, we're going to look at excerpts from the, um, one of the oldest stories in the Old Testament that is set in a time and a culture way more distant and way more primitive than ours, yet underneath it all, it operates in the same exact way. I'm going to give you, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be talking about Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 1. And I'm going to give you just a quick, uh, quick run through uh, what the first 11 verses are about. You see, there was this king and his name was Xerxes 
who ruled over more than 120 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. That is huge, a huge empire. Needless to say, it, it was probably the biggest empire in its time. In just his third year, the king decided, hey, I'm doing pretty good here. Right? I got things going. I am the king, and so I'm going to throw the biggest feast ever. I mean, it was fan fancy. It, it had all of the fixings, the best of the best foods, the best of the best drinks, the best decorations, the best entertainment. You name it. It was absolutely impressive. Now, the king had a wife, right? And her name was Queen Vashti. And in verse 10, it says, On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, a.k.a. he was absolutely drunk, right? He told the seven eunuchs who, who attended him, and I might beat this up here, but it was Mehuman, Bitha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass. I think something like that, right? And it says to bring, he asked them to bring his wife to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a beautiful woman. Now, I get that this was a long time ago, and some of you might think, well, Pastor, that sounds sexist. That sounds very shallow and self-serving and even egotistical. And you're probably right. I will not fight you on that. But let's look below the surface. Based on what you know and how the, uh, what you know about the way people worked, oh, excuse me, about the way people work, what is he trying to do here? What is he really trying to do? Yeah, he's bidding. He's bidding for her attention. He's bidding to connect with her. He's saying, I want to connect with you. Now, we may not appreciate or approve of the way he's doing it, but in essence, that's what he's really trying to do here. Why? Because even if you're the king of the largest empire on earth with unlimited power and riches and resources, you still want to be liked. You still want to be included. You, feel, you still feel like you have a say in your story. Let's continue to read. In verse 12, it says, But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. Dun, 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 dun. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. She doesn't want to do it. Who knows why? Maybe she's annoyed with him. Maybe she just doesn't want to hang out, uh, be in a room with a bunch of drunk guys. And that's understandable. The point is, she doesn't see it for what it really is, a bid for connection. So what does she do? She ignores him. In other words, she responds how? Indifferently, right? She's indifference. And what he hears is, I'm avoiding you. Your interests are beneath me. Everything is more important than you. You're not worth my time. I don't want to be involved with you. I don't care about you. doesn't matter if you're the king. And since humans can't stand being ignored, what does he do? He gets irritated. He gets annoyed. He gets frustrated. 
Now maybe you're thinking, so what? What is she supposed to do? Walk into a potentially dangerous environment with a bunch of drunk men? Now, now contextually, she did live, live in a different culture where she had a lot less options than women do today. And that's disheartening, right? But research shows you can respond positively and the answer still be no. That's right. You can respond positively, positively in situations to bids of connection and your answer still be no. So let's exit the story for a minute and think about what that could be like in our context today. Let me give you an example. Someone asks, hey, want to catch this movie? Want to catch a movie this, this, this weekend? Now, you don't have to go to the movies for it to be a positive response. There's a big difference between not replying to their text at all. That's indifference. That's uh, standing someone up. That's ignoring them. And replying back, right? Why would I do that? I can't even believe you like that trashy movie. I've got stuff to do, loser. Now, <laughs> that's negatively. That's a negative response. But what if the reply was, man, I wish I could, but I already have plans. But I'm so glad you asked me, though. Can, can, can I get a rain check? Can we do this at another time? That is a positive answer, yet your answer is still no. Each response has a totally different effect on the relationship. And here's the kicker. They compound over time, right? The more indifferent you are to someone, right, it's going to get it's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to start having more weight. So back to the story. Her response to his bid angers him. And to make matters worse, he's drunk. So let's see how awesome this story actually turns out. In verse 13, it says, He immediately consulted his wise advisors. Uh, who were probably drinking with him at the same time, who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked for their advice. Verse 15, what must be done to Queen Vasti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his Enochs? Now, not that you've never done that before, no, no. You don't get annoyed that someone doesn't respond to your bid for connection the way you want them to, so you don't tell your friends how horrible a person they are and scheme together about how you can you can get back at them to make them pay for the horrible way they've made you feel. No, no, not you, not anyone here, right? Now, you know what happens? One of his drunk friends does have a revenge idea. And he says, banish her. Get rid of her. Don't try and understand where she's coming from. Don't work on this relationship. Don't work on your communication. Don't assume there's more to the story. And definitely don't make any accountability. Don't take any accountability for your part in what happened. Instead, blame her. Blame her entirely and punish her eternally. And this, my friends, will have implications for the entire kingdom. You see, because 
in relationships, when we are in relationships, there are always communal and collective consequences to relationships breaking apart. Dysfunction between two people always affects more than just those two people. Think about that. Whenever there's some kind of uh, argument, whenever there's some kind of dysfunction in a relationship, it is, does not just affect those two people involved. It has it involve it it, it it begins to to affect and impact those around them in that circle. So why does the king bid in such a dysfunctional way? Listen, growing up is the process of trying to figure out what you need to do or who you need to be in order to get your needs met. Think about that. Growing up is the process of trying to figure out what you need to do or who you need to be in order to get your needs met. We try different things. We experiment. If something works for us, then we lean into it. If it doesn't, we abandon it over time. These become our patterns. These become the, uh, these become the ways we go about living life, uh, working in our relationships. Now, ever ask yourself, why is this person doing this? Chances are it's an attempt to be liked, to be included or in control. You may not like how they go about trying to get their needs met. It may not be the way you would do it, but their past experiences have taught them that this is what works. However, here's the thing. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we develop dysfunctional behavior to survive in dysfunctional environments. In other words, we do things that, that may not make sense in order to address, get through, or handle situations, relationships that are not going right. And then we move out of these environments, but we don't change our dysfunctional behavior. We take this dysfunctional behavior wherever we go because on how we handle our relationships talking about that's just me that's who i am it's part of me it prevents me from 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 getting hurt right here's the thing some of us adapted a style of bidding to survive a dysfunctional relationship with our dad or mom as a kid that's ruining our relationship today with our own kids now that we're a mom and dad. So these patterns that you set up to help you deal and cope with the issues and the relationships that you had when you were a kid with mom and dad, you've brought them with you. And now you're using these dysfunctional behaviors in order to deal with the relationship with your kids now. What happened to you wasn't right, it wasn't fair, but in your eyes, you survived. You adapted in order to get your needs met. And now, you're going to have to adapt again in order to meet someone else's needs. You're going to have to learn to bid and respond to bids differently for the sake of healthy relationships. Because the truth of the matter is, we are all looking to have healthy relationships. 
There's not one person in this room that would say, you know what, Pastor? I want to be in a, in a detrimental, devastating relationship because that's, that's where the fun is. No, we all want healthy relationships. Why do we bid in the first place? Because our bids are subtle, requiring those around us to guess our intentions and pick up on our cues. Why not be straightforward, Pastor? Because we want to avoid emotional risk openly and obviously bidding for connection makes us vulnerable. Our hearts and our egos are on the line here. So we mask it to soften up the blow of rejection. And if they don't give us what we want, we just pretend like we didn't want it in the first place. I don't care about Queen Vashti anyway. Send her away. I don't care. But here's the good news, church. Connecting is not magic. It is a skill. It can be learned, it can be practiced, and it can be mastered. Despite your past or your personality, you are not doomed. Your relationship with your kids uh, is not doomed. Your marriage is not doomed. Your dysfunctional childhood does not mean that you cannot have a happy connected adult life. But I want you to write this down. Connecting is also not automatic. It requires conscious effort and diligence. Here's the key. A willingness to keep trying even when it feels like nothing is working. You got to keep going at it. You got to keep putting your part. You got to keep Pushing and pushing to develop, to develop a healthy relationship. So let me wrap this up. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, thinks that conscious effort and diligence looks like when we put it into play. In James 1.19, he says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. In other words, make it your goal to pay attention and respond positively as much as possible, as often as possible. You should be looking to, to respond positively in your relationships to the bids of connection that are being thrown your way. Now, you're not going to get it perfect. Perfection is not possible. But again, the quality and closeness of a relationship are the culmination of successful bids and responses to bids between two people over time. So, in your relationships, whether that be with your spouse, with your significant other, with your children, your grandparents, your in-laws, your co-workers, your neighbors, your boss, you should all be striving to have healthy relationships with them, regardless of at what tier they are in your life. But we should all be striving to have healthy relationships. And healthy relationships are going to, to come about when we work at it, when we put in the effort, when we put in what James said, when we are uh, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And so today, if you start that today, may not be successful by, by tomorrow, 
But the more you add today and you add tomorrow and the next day and the next day of working at it, paying attention, responding positively, eventually it will culminate in a healthy relationship because relational health is built once more interaction at a time. One at a time. A little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, and a little bit the next day. And the more you keep working at it, the more you keep building at it, you're going to see progress in your relationship. Again, with your spouse, with your children, with your coworkers. It's not going to happen. You can't wiggle your nose. You can't uh, blink an eye. You can't command it into, 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 into place. You have to work at it. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Church, this month we're going to focus on those relationships that matter to us. We're going to focus on the relationships that are closest to us and even some relationships that are two or three tiers um, away. We want healthy relationships. We want a healthy relationship and a healthy atmosphere at home. We want healthy relationships and a healthy atmosphere in your community, in your neighborhood. We want healthy relationships and atmospheres in your workplaces, at your schools. But it's going to require you to put in the work.